0: Over 14 million people in the United States struggle to put food on the table every day. That's according to a September 2019 report by the U.S. Department of Agriculture that also said 4% of Americans go hungry every day because they don't have enough money to buy food. I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, and this is the Trinity University Learning Together podcast series. Each month, this podcast features faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who've established themselves as experts in their fields. It's all part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni. Today, you'll hear a conversation with Dr. Ashante Reese, class of 2007, about food insecurity. Dr. Carolyn Becker, professor of psychology at Trinity University, will engage Dr. Rees in the conversation, which will bring to light how neighborhood inequities and racial residential segregation impact food access. Their discussion will also cover Dr. Reese's hopes for the future and possible solutions to food insecurity.
1: Your work and research on food insecurity brought to light how neighborhood inequities and in racial residential segregation impact food access. Could you explain that to our audience?
2: Yeah, sure. So first of all I just want to say there's a lot of different terms that are thrown out there to kind of basically measure who's hungry, why are they hungry, right? And so I I think my research falls on the side more so around the why. Um, so a lot of times food insecurity measures are around the household environment, what's actually available in the home. And so what I do is mostly look at what are the structural conditions outside of the home, i.e. what supermarkets are available, what other kinds of stores are available, restaurants, any kind of urban agriculture that might be happening in a space. So when I started my research in Washington, D.C., um, I was really interested in cities, of course, and this is true of San Antonio as well. That you can look at a map of most major cities and metropolitan areas, and you'll see the ways that um, neighborhoods are largely racially segregated. And there are measures for this. There are some some cities who have hyper segregation, and then there are other cities where you can see the patterns, but they're not as strong. Um, so there's a lot of there's a whole body of research around how Residential segregation by race um, impacts the availability of resources. And so in my work, what I started looking at is the relationship between residential segregation and what people had access to in Washington, D.C. Because I'm an anthropologist, there's this very large macro level question of access that I'm interested in. But a large part of what I've done is to, translate what that looks like in terms of the human experience and human condition, which means that after establishing that there is this relationship between segregation and access to food resources in D.C., most of what I've done over the last six, seven years is get to know how people are navigating that particular inequity. So just to give listeners a a picture, in D.C., um, there's a river that some consider the dividing line, the Anacostia River, East of the Anacostia River is overwhelmingly black, around 96% of the population, though um, those numbers might be shifting a little bit. And there are four supermarkets to serve about 150,000 residents, which is um, starkly different from west of the Anacostia River, where just one ward, for example, might have four grocery stores or supermarkets in itself. So that's kind of like the broad stroke of what I do.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Now, you did an extensive ethnographic fieldwork in the Washington, D.C. area that revealed um, other contradictions that are not always visible in the shiny glare of Washington, D.C. Could you explain that to our audience?
2: Yes. So I think that when, we, when we're in D.C., or even if you're not in D.C., the way it is in a popular imagination, we think of government politics, we think of even international politics. Um, There is an abundance of resources in Washington, D.C., and then when you live there or you spend a lot of time there, outside of that glitz and glam, you start to see just um, what some of my research friends and participants would say is there's Washington, which is the the seat of politics and all of that, and then there's D.C., which is Uh, where the real, the quote-unquote, real people are, the people who aren't transplants, the people who've grown up there. And so that is what I was very curious about. And you really start to see a tale of two cities. Um, You can see the resources very clearly. You can see how and where resources are distributed in D.C. And over the past five to ten years, even though D.C.'s population has been increasing, DC's native and um, native to DC and black populations have been decreasing, mostly because the cost of living has increased as gentrification has happened and all of that. So there's this pull. One of the one of the tensions with food research is that obviously, as a researcher, I, I really want people to have what they need. That's important. And also food institutions and urban agriculture can conversely be drivers of gentrification, um, which, le- that which push out low-income residents. So that's one of the contradictions that um, is very visible in DC. There's a lot of development. People can generally think development is really good. And then on the flip side of that, there are a lot of people who struggle with this development because even though resources are increasing, incomes are not increasing, And there are very few protections in place to um, make affordable housing a a reality uh, for people who could use it.
1: So D.C. is not the only place where you've worked. Um, You traveled to Ferguson, Missouri in April 2015 in solidarity for a movement committed to raising the minimum wage to $15 per hour. This trip exposed you to the human conditions as experienced by their intermingled fight for racial justice with economic justice. Um, And that exposure presented a much-needed clarity in understanding people's lived experiences are not distinct academic categories and rarely fit into any one theory of human behavior. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, so when I had taken my first faculty job at Rhodes College, The moment that I got there, there was stuff that was happening around Michael Brown's murder. There was a group of people who were organizing folks to travel to Ferguson um, to be a part of protests that were happening there. And that was early in my—I literally had just moved there in 2014, and the week I moved, I was in these kind of community organizing meetings. And so I didn't go on that first trip. But, but being in that meeting, a lot of the organizers who were there were also part of this Fight for 15 campaign that I got more involved with when I was in Memphis because I hadn't, up until that point, I hadn't really considered um, fast food workers or wage laborers um, beyond, like, farm farm workers. I hadn't really thought about why that's important. And so fast forward to the moment that we go to Ferguson, I thought it was a really interesting choice because even though we were there, this is a site, you know, of of Mike Brown's murder that had been a catalyst for a lot of movement work that was happening. And at the same time I'm looking around at these this crowd of people and I'm looking at the locations of McDonald's and these other fast food restaurants adjacent to boarded up strips of where businesses may have been before, but no longer exists. And it, it it was a very clear picture of how, okay, I care about food being on people's table, yes, but everything that I research is really about structural oppression, and those oppressions are experienced simultaneously. Like, it's not one day that someone is just experiencing racial oppression, but they are all right with food or their income is fine, like all of these things are interlocking at the same time. So the communities that are often experiencing over-policing are also the communities that supermarkets will avoid, for example. And so um, that's a challenge as a researcher because I can't always follow all of these paths, right? But I do think that there's something really important about noticing and at least acknowledging that people don't, yeah, people don't live in categories. We're existing in all of these limbo spaces at the same time. So Ferguson for me was a very um, influential, influential moment. And I don't know that it was because I didn't already intellectually know these things, but there was something about these thousands of people who had gathered um, in the name of a living wage for for people who do fast food work at the site where my ground was murdered. I think intellectually and emotionally, it was a powerful experience.
1: I mean, it sounds like an incredibly important experience.
0: Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series, brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development, and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU, 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today, and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to the conversation with Ashante Reese and Carolyn Becker.
1: Returning to um, supermarkets, in a recent interview on the loss of grocery stores and the power of choice, you stated that you see supermarkets as more than just a place to buy some bread. Can you elaborate on that?
2: Supermarkets are important because most people in the U.S. shop at at supermarkets, whether physically going to the store or more recently using services like Instacart or other delivery services. But the other, there are other reasons why supermarkets are important. For a very long time now, at least since the 1950s, 1960s, supermarkets have also functioned as um, anchor institutions in neighborhoods and communities, and by anchor institutions I mean an institution that can attract other businesses to a neighborhood. So in addition to providing people food, they often – serve a very important economic function um, because when people move to neighborhoods too, they're looking for good schools if they have children, they're looking for great parks if they like to be outside, they're looking for how well houses are maintained, they're looking for all those things, and they're also looking for where am I going to buy my food. So in addition to attracting businesses, having a good quality supermarket also can attract long-term Stable residents, whether they're home, you know, looking to buy a home or looking to rent into a community for a very long time. So they, so this economic function is is a really really important one, um, one that I think sometimes gets missed or understated. And then the the other thing that supermarkets do, especially if they are supermarkets that draw from the community around them, is they function as a space where people have like this sociality around buying food or having these moments where they can, uh, they may run into a neighbor and say hi, or these, what what a sociologist has um, called third spaces, these spaces that aren't our home, they aren't our, our places of work, they're not our worship institutions, but they are these spaces where you you have some, they have a social function, and supermarkets have that. When I was in graduate school, I always liked to shop at Trader Joe's, and mostly it was because it's a smaller store, but I would see the same workers there all the time, and I would have the same cashier. And it was so nice to have that point of connection with someone. So, yeah, like this point of connection that people have is is
1: important. I have to say I totally agree with you about uh, Trader Joe's. Um, and so <laughs> thank you for... Um, clarifying that. It's, I mean, I absolutely agree. Supermarkets um, are just, there's so much meaning there. Now, in your article that was published following your trip to Ferguson, you actually expressed hope and a possible solution.
2: Could you tell us more about that? Whenever I give a talk, it's always depressing, right? Because we look at these numbers and there's um, it, it feels kind of hopeless. But I do think that, well, first of all, as an academic, I don't necessarily think it's my role to come up with solutions as I'm sitting in my office chair outside of, you know, being related to real communities. And so what I feel hopeful about, I feel hopeful, one, that there is so much more attention that is placed on food now, not just what individuals consume, but how it's produced, um, how fairly people are being paid or not paid. I was just reading an article about um, uh, Whole Foods and a certain percentage of their workers are no longer going to have health insurance and people are trying to organize around that. So I feel really hopeful around how much information people have related to food and how they can make their individual or collective decisions. The second thing is I am hopeful around the kind of collaborative work that people are doing. There's great organizations like the Heal Alliance, who's done wonderful work around the food system. There's Food First. There's um, National Black Food and Justice Alliance. All of these organizations are working collectively to address the kinds of inequities that are in our food system. And I think for me, in the last few years, being connected to that kind of work has felt so meaningful because In moments when I want to despair, I am reminded that I am working in community and in consultation with other people, and there's something about that collective work that helps me feel hopeful. And then I'll say the last thing is, um, because so many young people were participating in the climate strike today, I think that there's, I am hopeful about young people. I am super excited about the ways they're pushing all of us to really think about our consumption, to think about our relationship to this earth and um, creating a better future for not only them, but for future generations. And it's really forced us to think about, at least forced me to think about, like, how do our agricultural practices need to change? How, if at all, do we need to think differently around globalization and food, how far we ship food, how much food we import and how much we send out, all of these different things, because as our world has become more globalized, we're deeply connected and what we do here affects people all over and vice versa. So I i think these kinds of collective movements toward a better world, not just a better food system, make me feel hopeful.
1: I, I totally agree with you. So as somebody who also um, does research in the area of food insecurity, albeit from a very, very different angle um, and perspective, um, I'm always curious at what makes somebody interested in studying this area. So what made you interested in doing research on food insecurity?
2: After I graduated Trinity, I taught middle school for two years in Atlanta, Georgia. And I write about this in my book in the introduction, but I coached track and fields, and I had taken some students to go get a physical exam and it had gotten late and I decided I would feed them before they went home. So we stopped by the grocery store, I pick up food to take home to make them dinner and then take them back to their homes. And it was really the experience that I had with them in the supermarket and then consequently the, um, the conversation that we had about it. That opened my eyes to something that I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about. I taught in a, a high poverty area, high need area. I was super versed on education inequities, all that stuff, and I hadn't really thought about the food aspect until my students were like, "This supermarket we went to is so much nicer than anything we have in our neighborhood." And I think I made a comment that was like, no, it's just, a, it's just a store. And they're like, no, it's not just a store. And they asked me questions about the kinds of fruits and vegetables that were there. And we got into this really great conversation over the dinner table, and they asked me questions that I didn't have an answer to. Like I couldn't answer why my store would be so much better when they only lived less than four miles away. So I, when I decided I would go to graduate school, I thought, well, why not study these things that had such a deep impact on these students who I, who I loved? Um, and that's basically how I ended up studying food access.
1: I just have one more question for you. Given that this is a Trinity podcast, how did your Trinity experiences prepare you for the future? Any favorite memories of Trinity?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so when I came to Trinity... I am first generation college student and no real sense of what it meant to choose a college. Um, But I had spent the prior summer, like before college in Trinity's. there was a writing, um, a Trinity summer writing program. And I had spent three summers at Trinity because my high school English teacher thought it was a good idea. And I was, or three weeks. And so I was like, okay, cool. So I had been exposed to Trinity primarily through that program and applied because i felt like i should apply because i had done the program but i still like i was thinking i might go to baylor or some other school um but after i had done all of these applications i realized that i had had no experience with being in a place with tens of thousands of people like a school i grew up in a small town in East texas my graduating class is 114 students So I was overwhelmed by the idea of being in a really large college, and my high school English teacher at the time was like, you should go to liberal arts school, I think that's so much better for you. I had no idea what that meant. I'm so grateful for her for saying that, because for me, what Trinity fostered was a true commitment to interdisciplinary thinking and scholarship. Um, So I was a history major, Dr. Carrie Lattimore was my advisor, and I was an African American studies minor. And I think the history department was great in the sense that, like, even when I wrote my senior thesis, there was a lot of flexibility in how I thought about approaching it. Um, and then, like, I think there was this thing about being at Trinity that opened up my mind to be being an anthropologist. I didn't major in anthropology at Trinity. I didn't even take an anthropology class when I was at Trinity. But I had friends who were doing anthropology, and I learned things from them and it's just this way that there's this liberal arts allows you to be more fluid in your thinking, and that's certainly something that has influenced me over time throughout my entire career. And I just think like favorite memories. Um, my roommate Brittany and I would often sit out at the Magic Stones and talk about what we want our li- what what we wanted our lives to look like after undergrad. Sometimes we would study, but mostly those stones were where we dreamed up the lives that we wanted to live and I'm not sure that either one of us have followed a straight path to where we are but it was just nice to have those spaces and build those relationships with people Um, yeah like I am a lifelong supporter of liberal arts now and I know that that's largely due to my experience at Trinity
1: well I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this Um, that is all we have for today so we did it Yay. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Ashanti. Thanks. Have a good night. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast. I'm Nathan Cohn. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcast will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.